The business of culture, the culture of business, entrepreneurs, media and technology, policy, writers. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I think if you're a value investor, you're probably a student of history because we're not talking about how new technologies will impact the future. We're saying, let's look at the history of what's worked in the past. And when you read the economic history, it becomes apparent to anybody very quickly that what was happening 100 years ago in terms of the behaviors are the exact same as they are today. And they're the exact same as they will be 100 years from now. The, the characters change, the details change, but it's the same movie over and over and over again. And therefore, like, if you want to really understand what people are gonna do over the next hundred years. Yeah, like you could just look at these behaviors that never change and know with quite a bit of certainty that it's gonna be the same. Here with Morgan Housel, author of the international bestseller, The Psychology of Money, on his new book, Same As Ever, A Guide to What Never Changes. Do stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me from Seattle, finally, is Morgan Housel. The book is Same as Ever, A Guide to What Never Changes. Clearly, you heard about the book that was an international bestseller, The Psychology of Money. Every time I see a headline about it, it's published in this language and in this country and this much in the way of sales. Uh, you are a partner at the Collaborative Fund. I guess loosely you're part of the value investing mafia, if there is such a thing, like the PayPal mafia. How do, is, did I describe it well? I think I think that's good. You know, when I started investing 20 some odd years ago, I was very much dyed in the wool value investing. I haven't strayed from that per se. I invest a little bit differently now, but that's still very much in my DNA. I mean, regardless, an indispensable byline when it comes to life lessons, investing, fear, greed, optimism, you know, you hear him and see him on so many podcasts and you see his stuff shared everywhere. I think I've seen your byline in the Wall Street Journal as well. And another RVA connection is you are on the board of directors of Markel which is, you know, insurance and investing company, the juggernaut that kind of flies under the radar in Richmond. It's been one of the best performing stocks in the stock market since I say the crash of 87. I ran a story in 2012 for Bloomberg Business Week on back then it was the best stocks in the 25 years since the crash of 87. Yeah. And Markel came up on the screen and to a person, the Bloomberg editors looked at each other, Markel Glenallen, Virginia, is that a biotech? I mean, one of them was Fastenal. It makes, you know, screws and fasteners for yeah. companies like nobody would have thought they would have thought Microsoft or Cisco or United Health, but you know, there you go. I feel like whenever you do those lists of the best performing stocks over the last 20 years or like, oh, when it's a long period, the, the names at the top are almost exclusively names you've never heard of. So I remember several years ago, one of the, the best performing stock, I think of the previous 20 years was Kansas City Southern Railroad. Yeah. And number I think number two was Monster Beverage. Monster Beverage, which, which used of, to be Hanson Naturals. Never, yeah. You've never yeah. And these, some of these stocks have literally like in the hundreds of thousands of percent returns over a 20 year period, just absolute monsters that you've never heard of. And so that in itself is an interesting thing because to me, at least the takeaway is if you have never heard of them when they're big, how do you think you're going to know about them when they're tiny? 
How do you think you're going to find them back when they're tiny if you've never even heard of when they're giant? So that it's it's much it's much harder. Like that in itself is a view of how hard it is to do to pick these stocks. And to think how anachronistic it is. I was at a mag the magazine of the Wall Street Journal. People might remember it was called Smart Money. And in 2002, we did a screen, 10 stocks, 10 best stocks for the next 10 years or 20 years. And to think of the things that they picked and having no visibility into the adaption of the smartphone or 5G and NVIDIA would never come out of anywhere. And and for something that was a monthly investing magazine, which is anachronistic by itself right now, I think about all that that has changed and then some since, you know, in my adult investing career. And those are some of the through points I think I've been thinking about in your latest book. For starters, what's jarring to me is that, and I wonder how often you think about this, you might well not have been here at all right now. You know, your survival in terms of your, you know, youthful penchant for skiing the slopes and kind of breaking in and avalanche risk. If you want to tell us about the very outset of your book, I think that was the real eye opener for me on on just chance and serendipity. Yeah. So I, I grew up as a competitive ski racer in Lake Tahoe, California. I was on the Squaw Valley ski team for many years. There were about a dozen of us and it was, it was great. It's such a, it's such a unique sport. It's not basketball or, or baseball. It's like, it's weird oddball sport. And, but we skied, um, six days a week, 10 months a year, all over the world growing up. And it was, it was amazing. There's, there were about a dozen of us that we were just always around each other. And in February of 2001, we were 17 years old. And myself and two of my best friends from, from skiing, from ski racing, were skiing at Squaw Valley where, where we grew up. And we would ski out of bounds, which means you duck under the ropes that say do not cross, where, you, where you're not supposed to do it, but it's where the good skiing is. It's untracked. You get the mountain to yourself. Yeah. When you do that, when you get to the bottom, there's no chairlift because you're, you're out of bounds. So we would hitchhike back. It would spit us out on this backcountry road and we'd hitchhike back. So the three of us did it one morning. And when we did it, we triggered a very small avalanche. It was not that big of an avalanche. It probably came up to our knees. I remember we kind of like, it felt like you're riding a roller coaster. We were like, whoa, this is great. Like so much fun. Didn't think anything of it. We hitchhiked back to the mountain and my two friends, Brendan and Brian said, hey, let's go do it again. Let's like, that was fun. Let's go do it again. For whatever reason, I think it was probably the hitchhiking, which I always hated doing. Like that felt dangerous to me. I didn't want to do it. So I said, hey, how about this? You guys go do it. And rather than hitchhiking back, I'll drive my truck around the mountain and pick you up. So we went our separate ways. They went skiing. I went back to my truck to go get them. And 20 minutes later or so, when I, I go to the pickup spot where I'm going to meet them, they weren't there. And I, I didn't think much of it. I, I think at the time I thought that they had just, they got down before me and they hitchhiked back. But the hours went on through the day. This is before cell phones or people were very comfortable being out of touch. If, if you hadn't heard someone in, in six hours before cell phones, it was like, it was not that big a deal. But as the day went on later that that day, Brian, one of the guys, his mom called me at home and said, Hey, Brian never showed up for work today. Do you know where he is? And I, I told her the truth. I said, you know, we, we skied the backside of squat today and I was going to pick him up at the road, but they, they never showed up. And I haven't seen them since then. And I don't, I don't know if anyone else has either. So that was the first indication that something had, something was, was really amiss here. And as the day went on several hours later, we got the police involved, missing persons report. The police did not take it seriously at all. They thought a hundred percent chance they're drunk at a party or something like that, which to the police's credit, like, I'm sure that's what happens 99% of the, of the time there's a missing person. But we finally convinced them several hours later to get search and rescue involved. And search and rescue took it very, very seriously because they knew how dangerous mountains could be. And when you piece all this together, that we were skiing out of bounds during a, a period where the avalanche risk was very high, they knew it was a big deal. So they went out the, out the mountain looking for Brendan Bryan at midnight. They had these giant portable floodlights that they would bring with them. And when they got to the spot where we were skiing, they found this enormous, fresh avalanche scar on the mountain. One of them said it looked like half the mountain had been torn away. So that's, that's where they searched. 
And nine hours later or so, this is now 9 a.m. the next day, a team of search dogs had kind of homed in on a spot in the avalanche field where rescuers with probe poles uh, found Brendan and Brian buried under six feet of snow. And they were, they, they were dead, of course. And that, of course, I always have to preface this when I, when I say, like, I think you and everybody, I'm sure, has lost somebody dear to you. Like the, like the fact that I had some friends that were very dear to me that we lost, it's, it's not necessarily a unique experience. Maybe the circumstances were. But what I thought about as the years went on, especially, and I was trying to just become more reflective about what happened, is the idea that if I had gone with them on that second run, 100% chance I would have died with them. I mean, this was a massive, massive avalanche. There's no escaping it. And avalanches, most people aren't too familiar with it, but if you look up on, on YouTube or something, a video of an avalanche, the power that they can generate is simply incredible. It's, it's not a wave. It's the equivalent of like a tsunami. It's just they can generate so much force. No, you're, you're not going to outrun it. It's, it's, it's going to end up killing you. So then I look back and I say, okay, the most important decision that I've ever made in my entire life through today was not going on that second run. And then I can think about that I did not put any thought into my decision to not go with them. I didn't weigh the pros and cons. It was not like, oh, it was not like, oh guys, this is too dangerous. We, we can't do it. It was just a brainless decision that I made and no other decision that I've ever made in my life before or since has come close to the importance of that. So I use that in the book as an example of how fragile the world is. You know, when I step back from it, I think about, and you've seen this stuff, it becomes kind of whimsical, almost like, you know, a calendar you would buy at an airport store with anodyne phrases and everything, how unlikely it is for you to be here uh, to begin with, to kind of win the ovarian lottery. But then as I was reading this, I was thinking about stories that my grandfather told my father, who's now ill, that, you know, let's take it back 123 years ago. He barely survived the pogrom in Shiraz, Iran. You know, he lived long enough to survive the great flu in 1918 and seeing all of his brothers carried out to the cemetery. And then he lived long enough to have my father. And my father had croup, which was something that's very curable today, that they summoned effectively the uncles to bury my father. But my father lived long enough to have me. And I survived bacterial meningitis, a terrible bout of it. And I, I guess I regale my son with that story when he had croup at the age of two. And we took him to the ER, and it was just a steroid shot and a popsicle to think all the things that had to happen for them to be here. And if you multiply that probability in the ovarian lottery times Morgan Housel and that split decision to not go on that kind of bootleg run, that this conversation is actually, in the grand scheme of everything, it's infinitesimally improbable. And here's what's so interesting about it is that those stories that you just told about your family's odds of making it to now, in my view, what you just described in terms of the, the pogrom and the illnesses, those are all very big events. But I think what is even more powerful are the tiny events that changed your life. For example, let's say, just hypothetically, let's say you left your house for work this morning at 8.43. There's an alternative world where you left at 8.42 and got in a fatal car accident because of it. So those are, those are the know-nothing events that you don't even think about, that you could, no one could have ever seen coming that completely and utterly changed everything. And that, to me, is the example of how fragile the world is. It's not the big events. It's actually, in my view, it's not necessarily the pogroms or the meningitis that can actually do the biggest damage. It's like the know-nothing little things that nobody would ever think about, but they kind of fester and compound into these two of the massive events. You know, there's, I think it was Daniel Kahneman who pointed out right. that there was a moment in time that, let's take three people, Adolf Hitler, Mao Zedong, and Stalin, that when they were in their mother's wombs, they could have been born female. 
Like they, like there was a moment in time when that decision of like when the eggs were being fertilized, it could have gone this way or that way. And in those, in that split decision, if those three people were born female or if they were not born at all, all of the history of the 20th century would be completely and utterly different by taking, I, I think I calculated one time that I think it was 17 billion people were born in the 20th century, but like just those three people, Hitler, Mao and Stalin completely and utterly changed everything. And so that, that, again, is just like how ridiculously fragile the world is. Another example I use in the book is about a week before Franklin Roosevelt was sworn into office, there was an assassination attempt. And actually, the guy standing next to him, he was the mayor of Chicago. In Miami, uh, in, who, Bay, in Bayfront Park. I mean, very few people realize this. Would yes, there be the new uh, deal? A, yeah, I mean, it blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, he, he was the one who died. So if the bullet was six inches in the other direction and FDR died, back then, as the way that the um, presidential system was set up, the person who was elected vice president, he was not sworn in yet, would have automatically become president. That person was completely against all the New Deal programs. So there would be no New Deal that you and I and everyone are being uh, impacted by in, in a lot of good ways and maybe some negative ways today, you know, 80 years later. So when you realize how fragile the world is, it gives you a lot of humility to like, let's not pretend that we know what the world's going to look like in 20 years for, for our own life or for the whole economy. We don't. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Our guest joining us from the Pacific Northwest is Morgan Housel. The book drops on November 6th. It's Same as Ever, A Guide to What Never Changes. Morgan, of course, is the best-selling author of The Psychology of Money. How many countries has that been published in? Uh, Psychology of Money, 50, 58 languages. Have you done a global book tour with it? I mean, this stuff really resonates. You can go to Estonia. You can go take the Pudong bullet train in China and talk about it. <laughs> haven't quite done that yet. A lot of it was during the, the COVID times. And obviously, when you translate something, a lot of things don't translate one for one. So the translator takes some liberties at changing things. So I actually don't even know if the Chinese version or the Korean version is, is exactly giving you the same lessons as the English version. On the theme of compounding and you know optimism, which is a through line in this book, and the difficulty of being optimistic, because I guess pessimism reflects it. Pessimism seems so much more authentic, and I feel your pain, and it's not Pollyannish. But, and yet, and I know you cited in an interview you did, somebody saying the best day of her life was the end of World War I, because a world war would never happen again. I also saw a stat, you probably saw it from our friend Barry Ritholtz this week, had a World War I soldier going off to World War One from the United States said, look, this is my entire life savings of $1,000. If I put it in a mason jar and bury it for progeny versus putting it in whatever the S&P was back then, the S&P 40, the S&P 50. So that $1,000 would be $1,000 nominally. You kind of open the thing up in real terms, right? In inflation adjusted terms, I think it'd be worth something like $40 today. No one could tell you that the $1,000 in the S&P compounded at something like 10.2% a year throughout such a volatile and otherwise miserable century would be worth more than $30 million in 2023. And I'm thinking about that woman that you talked about. I'm thinking about the many historical things that you prop up. I mean, things such as croup that would kill people back then. Horrors, not just of World War I, but then World War II. And uh, the Korean War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, various things that happened, devaluation, hyperinflation, the Iran hostage crisis, crash of 87, things on the chart that look so de minimis right now. The crash of 87 or you know, institutional memory, a lot of young traders on Wall Street don't know about the SNL crisis. It's kind of like it's completely forgotten. That's pre-pre-subprime. They don't know what happened in 1994. And yet you plot all of these events over a long kind of Ibbotson chart. I'm sure you've seen it before. 
And the market does what the market does. And we've had so many innovations. And I think 2003 me would be blown away by the fact that I stream through Bluetooth in my car and any song pretty much that was ever created, I could effortlessly have that we have an AIDS cocktail, that there are certain things that have certainly give you fodder for depression and sadness, inflation, war in the Middle East, the biggest war in, in Europe, maybe since World War II. And yet it seems like optimism and compounding are underrated. I mean, here's how I'd, I'd respond to that. To the person who, let's say, hypothetically invests $1,000 in 1918, and now it's $30 million. You know, let's not pretend that that was easy in the slightest, because you had the number of national tragedies and traumas and uncertainties that you had to live through is endless. We don't need to list them all, but the Great Depression, World War II, and inflation, 9-11, COVID. So let's not pretend that that was easy money in the, in the slightest. That was actually like very difficult to do. So one of the chapters in the book, it talks about like how hard it is to be long-term. It's one thing I always equate it to saying, saying I'm a long-term investor is like standing at the base of Mount Everest and pointing to the top and saying, that's where I'm going. You're like, okay, great. That's good. Now you have to climb up. Now comes the hard part. And even if you are, you say you're a long-term investor, the long-term is just a collection of short-terms. And the short-term is a collection of setbacks and surprises and recessions and bear markets and pandemics and wars and terrorist attacks that you need to experience and endure and survive financially and, and able to stick around for the long-term. And that's actually like emotionally that can be very, very difficult. So even for that person who invested in 1918, they probably went through a 20 or 22 year period where they had less money adjusted for inflation than when they started. And that even, even for the, the most diehard optimistic person will start to eat away at your, at your vision and your values. So and second guessing. And I think even the institutional people you'll deal with, uh, portfolio managers, uh, limited partners, everything that have to go back and talk to investment committees and say, no, we want to stay with value. We want to stay with international. I don't want to get in the weeds with you, but that kind of faith, it's easy in retrospect. It's easy to say that Y2K was diluted and it was a time to get out of the United States, You know, crowded big tech trade before the worst decade since the depression. In practice, it's brutally hard to not chase the trend. Including a part of this is that if you are a professional investor, if you're a fund manager, it's very difficult from a business point standpoint to tell your investors, oh, just be patient for the next 10 years. The yeah. returns are going to suck, but just, just stay with me for 10 years. By and large, they won't do that. They might give you a year to prove yourself. Sure. And then if you haven't proven yourself, they're gone. And then your business walks out the door and you're done. So even if you are, if you're a professional fund manager, and even if you are correctly optimistic on the next decade and you say, look, there's going to be a lot of volatility, but over the next 10 years, this is all going to pay off. By and large, you can't actually run a business doing that. And that's why in the industry as a whole, it kind of leans towards short-termism. It's not that people don't know how to be long-term optimists. It tends to, it just tends to be that the business of investing almost naturally pushes people towards an uncomfortable and inefficient short-termism. You know, Morgan, in the chapter, now you get it. Nothing is more persuasive than what you've experienced firsthand. I really took it to heart and I'm, I think about this all the time. I'm 25 years removed from college graduation. And what is it that I can't stop thinking about the year 1998 and when I, you know, got my job in the brokerage industry and the collapse of long-term capital management and the ruble collapsing and Boris Yeltsin teetering. I mean, that's ancient history. I think oil fell to $10 a barrel nominally. 
And I took that information and everything else I learned as a practitioner and as a business journalist. And when I reunited with my high school economics professor, I just had this loaded meeting of life question for him. He was driving through. He's retired. He has an RV with his wife. He was here a couple of years ago in Central Virginia. And I said, Mr. Lutness, Professor Lutness, like the, you know, the Tootsie Roll owl, you know, how many licks does it take? I go, sir, what is normal? What is the meaning of normal? When was it ever normal? Can you give me a baseline year when we didn't have war or inflation or overstimulative interest rates or something bizarre happening like a pandemic? And he didn't blink an eye. He said normal was the year, the time, the month you graduated from college, what the world was like. Talk about that. Yes. Uh, it's true. I mean, historically, of course, there is no normal. It's uh, it's always crazy. In the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he talks about, I'm, I'm gonna, I might badly paraphrase this, but he says, any technology that exists when you are, are, are young is exciting because you can make a career out of it if it's a new technology. If you're like over the age 30, then it's a threat to your career that you've already built up. So young people look at new technology and like really exciting, but old people look at it as a threat to them. So like, what is new technology? It's whatever comes out when you're young. Like the new technology that comes out when you're old is not exciting. It's a threat to you. So I think, yeah, it's true that everyone just anchors to what they've personally experienced and, and, and what they've been through. You could also see this in 2008 when after the financial crisis, gold became very popular when the Fed was printing a lot of money during this period. Like there are a lot of gold bugs back then. I remember Mr. The T, Mr. T coming to Bloomberg headquarters yes. and advertising gold. <laughs> what what better mascot for gold than Mr. Yeah. T? But but what generation did that lean towards that was, that was most appealing to? It was not my generation because at the time we had never experienced any inflation in our entire life. It no. was my parents' generation, the baby boomers, who lived through the 70s and the inflation and the 15% mortgage rates of the 70s and were still scarred by it. So even though someone like myself mm. or you could read about that and, and try to empathize with it, we, we don't have the emotional scars that the baby boomers who experienced it firsthand do. And I have that experience as well. I'm sure myself and you will be scarred by COVID in different ways, in ways that my children will not necessarily understand. And my children can read about COVID. They might have a couple of brief memories from when they were, you know, they were two years old living through it, but they're not going to be scarred in the way that you and I were in 2020. So every generation has their own scars. And some of them are positive scars. Like if you grew up in the in the in the '90s, like you you have to experience what a real bull market feels like. Sure. And that's like a if positive scar is, is a way is a weird way to phrase it, but everyone anchors to their own experience. And you want to think that we are responding to the world in a really objective way. We're just looking at the data, but no, we're all looking at it through the own lens of our experience. And a lot of our experiences are outside of our control. It's where and when you were born are the biggest. So let's not pretend that if you and I were born in Africa in 1752, that we would have the same views about the economy and, and investing and compound interest that you and I do today. A lot of it is just the dumb luck of where and when we were born. So that's, it's a big part of really what shapes economic views and vibes and consumer confidence. What about this ongoing push to take human emotion out of investing? You hear about the rise of the robo-advisors and indexing was one. I mean, indexing and ETFs and the others kind of don't beat the market, just try to be the market. But even then, when I try to hold a value investor's hand to the fire and say, what is being the market? I've asked Tom, I've asked Saurabh, I've asked your other contemporaries. Yeah, they teach you in B school and in finance, you want to have the efficient frontier. If you could theoretically own a piece of every asset on the planet, I'm talking Peruvian alpacas, Haas avocados, right? Liquid stuff and keep your cost basis at a kind of a minimum and transaction fees. Things would zig when others would zag. And over the long run, whatever the heck the long run is, you'd be in the best shape. In practice, 
Markets aren't very liquid. China, for as much as it's had a miracle really since the turn of the century in terms of taking people out of poverty, its stock market is still a backwater. These are frustrating things because our emotions always want to intervene. And our, our, our anchored opinions. Yeah, I think when you look at an index, uh, I think you are taking cost out of the, uh, at least part of the cost out of the equation. You're taking you're adding diversification. You're taking a lot of effort out of the equation. You are not taking emotion out of the equation at all. Finance is always going to be emotional because for most people, what finance and investing is is their ability to retire and their ability to send their kids to college. And at the personal finance level, your ability to afford medical bills and where you live. These are very emotional topics, always have been and always will be. So even as we become quote unquote better at finance and understand and have new investing products and tools and data and context and whatnot, it's always going to be emotional for everybody. It's a, like I write about the emotions of investing for a living and I'm not going to pretend that I'm unemotional about my money. Of course I'm not. I'm not going to pretend that when I think about my future ability to retire, my career, my social status and standing that I'm completely unemotional about it. Absolutely not. I don't think anyone is. Some people are more emotional than others, but I don't think anyone just looks at money as just a spreadsheet endeavor. It's always kind of a social and lifestyle endeavor. And for even a lot of people like Buffett and those kind of people, it's their net worth is in some ways the representation of their life's work. And of course, they are more than that. They are good human beings and they are loved human beings by their family. But really, I think that's really what it is. It's a scorecard of like how well you've done. And that, of course, is like extremely emotional. Let's not pretend that if you take that away, they're going to be the same people. So no matter what the products are, it's always going to be a, a very emotional endeavor. Full disclosure, please do stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers indeed, including and especially Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe and call your girlfriend, is fullderadio.com. Again, fullderadio.com. A shout out to our radio listeners on NPR member station, Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. We're also on KPPQ out in Ventura. We are on WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina. Holler if you would like to carry us on your air. Of course, my DMs are always open. And a shout out to all the guests who turned out for our Full Disclosure Live with MSNBC President Rashida Jones. Sold out, absolutely slammed. Sad to tell you that Mayor Pete Buttigieg's Full Disclosure Live on December 1st sold out within an hour. Uh, so follow on socials at Full D Radio if any tickets free up. And we, of course, have an exciting slate for the spring. We're going to reschedule Steve Inskeep, other big shows, hopefully in DC and elsewhere. Again, the handle is Full D Radio on all the socials. Please do follow. If you are just joining us, my guest, patching in from Seattle, Washington is Morgan Housel, the best-selling author of The Psychology of Money. The new book dropping in early November is Same as Ever, A Guide to What Never Changes. I noticed belatedly Derek Thompson, we're both fans of his work and his podcasting and his byline, he called it Timeless Lessons About Money, Life, Storytelling, Ambition, and Satisfaction, A Library's Worth of Wisdom. I got to ask you, what is it about, and again, you're not spokesperson for value investors necessarily. Every time I try to talk to them about the brass tacks of value, or they invite me to their value investing predators balls, you know, various things that go on here, or value and veil or value there. They don't want to talk about stocks or value. They want to talk about human nature, greed, fear, kind of the immutable truths of life. I guess at some point, do you realize there's only so much to be gleaned from kind of pitching a, uh, something selling at a, a fraction of kind of liquidation value and its, its moat, its competitive moat and Warren Buffett-esque 
things, you guys talk about more levitated issues. Well, I think, I think if you're a value investor, you're probably a student of history because we're not talking about how new technologies will impact the future. We're saying, let's look at the history of what's worked in the past. And when you read the economic history, it becomes apparent to anybody very quickly that what was happening 100 years ago in terms of the behaviors are the exact same as they are today. And they're the exact same as they will be 100 years from now. My favorite economic book is a book called The Great Depression, A Diary. And it's written by this Ohio lawyer named Benjamin Roth, who he was a bankruptcy attorney, and he kept a very detailed diary during the Great Depression in the 1930s. It's such a fascinating book. And I was reading it one time, uh, 10 years ago or so, and uh, he's writing in 1932, which was the bottom of the Great Depression. And I thought to myself, if you change the dates on this post from 1932 to 2008, everything would make sense. What he was writing about in 1932 is exactly what people were thinking and saying in 2008. And then like two pages later, Benjamin Roth is writing in 1932, and he says that if you change the dates from 1932 to 1894, it's exactly the same. Everything that they were doing in 1934 is exactly what they were doing in 1894. In a panic. And he says it's same during the panic, and the same yeah. for the panic of 1873 or whatever it was. So even it's the, the characters change, the details change, but it's the same movie over and over and over again. And therefore, like if you want to really understand what people are going to do over the next hundred years, you, like you could just look at these behaviors that never change and know with quite a bit of certainty that it's going to be the same. We have no idea what the new technologies are going to be. We have no idea when the market's going to crash. We don't know who's going to dominate the 21st century, but we do know how people are going to respond to greed and fear and risk and uncertainty because those things have never and will never changed. They're just fundamental parts of how people work. So that to me was kind of the, the genesis of this book. You know, if we were at a New Year's Eve party, December 2022 becoming January 2023. If I told you that the year 2023 would have three of the four largest U.S. bank failures in history, why, pray tell, Morgan? What would you have guessed? Maybe a you know commercial real estate meltdown or something else. But for the most Minsky-esque of reasons, and that we survived it, and we're still at three and a half percent unemployment, nobody would right. believe and, it. And not only that, but if you if if you told me from your crystal ball that that's what happened, like you said, I would have said real estate meltdown. Not actually the banks that had the biggest problems are the ones that were chock full of treasuries. Yeah. And that's what threw them over the you edge. You know, an embarrassment, an embarrassment of riches, which didn't resemble anything in the past. I, I gave a, a talk recently about institutional memory. I mean, there are all these people that have been warning for decades about inflation is going to rear its ugly head. You know, the 30-year the bond bull market is over. The 20-year bond bull market is over. And then it finally really happened. And there was a, a run-up in rates. And then it caught some really sophisticated, supposedly bankers, really unawares. Like you're supposed, you can't mismatch, you know, maturities of depositors with the treasuries you're buying if you're out there trying to chase a little more yield without getting into inside baseball. It just showed you that something, you know, it was pretty scary in the spring when people were moving cash amounts around. And I get, when I get a call from Persian relatives saying, is my money safe in some mega regional bank? I know that it's hit a certain tripwire. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's pretty trippy. And just the fact that it was treasury bonds that really threw in Silicon Valley Bank, something that you wouldn't, like, not only would that seem preposterous two years ago, but in many ways, it was because after 2008, a lot of regulators and just bankers on their own volition said, look, we had too much risky debt. Like, we're, we're going to lean more towards perfectly safe government treasury bonds now, because that's the safe thing to do. And by doing that, like, because of the mechanics of some of their portfolios, it became the biggest risk. So not only would it have seemed preposterous, but it happened because they were trying to do what in their eyes, at least, seemed like the safe thing to do. Can you again define for our listeners what a Minsky moment is? I think it's kind of hard to get your head around a period of stability and calm engendering instability. 
so a Minsky moment is named after this, uh, this economist in the, 19, in the 1960s named Hyman Minsky. And a Minsky moment is really the moment when an economy that has been over leveraged and it's been booming because of that leverage for many years, finally realized that it can't afford its debt anymore. And then it's kind of the wily coyote moment of looking down and saying, oh, oh shoot, this is like, it, it's all over now. So 2008 was a Minsky moment. Because let's contrast that with 2007, which was one of the strongest economic years we've had in my lifetime. Everything was great. Stock market was great. Real estate's booming. And in 2008, everything implodes. So Minsky moments tend to happen very fast. It's not a gradual thing. It's a moment of looking down and saying, oh goodness, here we go. And so that, you know, those most financial crises do not brew slowly. They just pounce very quickly. And that's what the Minsky moment is. And then you back up for something this year where it was all but assumed that we were going to have a recession. It was fait accompli. I mean, I think it was Bloomberg in October 2022, just almost exactly a year ago, published a headline that says 100% chance of recession in the next 12 months. And they're quoting a group of economists, 100, not 99%, 100% chance. And of course, it didn't happen. Which, which, which is almost foreseeable when you write such a cocky headline, like 100% chance. At that point, it's almost guaranteed that there's not going to be a recession, just because that's how the economic gods work, I guess. And I've, I've lost track of how many recessions we've had over 50 years. I mean, mild, heavy, otherwise. Again, when you talk about you could have gone and cribbed notes from a certain panic in the late 19th century and superimposed it over the Great Depression or the stock market crash or 2008, what's scary is that I, I believe somebody put a note after uh, Subprime said that they were quoting, and you would think that it was subprime, but it was the early 90s, which was a pretty painful recession. And uh, we were coming in the wake of the savings and loan crisis. There was a debt overhang. There was concern about bond vigilantes. And yet no one really was romancing that this thing called Netscape or Mosaic Browser and the productivity boom would be kind of coming out of left field. And I'm sure no shortage of people, I was thinking about it when reading about optimism as a kind of a a reaction to you know being cornered or having dilemmas that mankind needs to fix. We sometimes think about the clean tech breakthrough, the battery. How much if, if suddenly Toyota had a 750-mile range solid-state battery, would that solve the world's ills? Would that get investor appetites excited? I mean, what is the thing right now that would have to prevail over the existential calamity of climate change and uh, debt loads and uh, social security deficits. You know what I'm saying? I'm just channeling this, the neurotic investor or journalist. And like, there's this amazing anecdote from Mark Andreessen, who yeah. is a, a very popular venture capitalist now. He and kind of, he more or less invented the 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 web browser with Netscape. Yeah, Mr. Netscape, Mark Andreessen. Yeah. And he tells a story that he he came to Silicon Valley in, I think, 93 or 94. And his view at the time was that he missed the tech boom, that it was over. That by the time he got there, he was too late in 1993. Now we look back in hindsight and nothing had even begun then. Nothing. But in his view at the time, it was already over. So a lot of these things, like not only are they so hard to see coming, even when you see them coming, it's very difficult to understand how, how, how big they're eventually going to get. Full disclosure, stay with us. Morgan Housel. Joining us from Seattle, full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The book is Same as Ever, A Guide to What Never Changes. It's a follow-up to his best-selling, his global 50-plus country bestseller, The Psychology of Money. What I have to say about reading uh, Morgan, it's these, these meditations, it's just super accessible. It's uh, really human. It's, I don't want to sound cliche and call it vulnerable, but eminently digestible. And you could go from chapters in the beginning to chapters in the back. I think Vitaly Katzenelson mentioned this style when he was doing you know, Soul in the Game, which is another book that I really like in this context. What was left on the cutting room floor? I know, you know having done one book myself that you want to deliver 
war and peace or uh you know the power broker but there are other things that you kind of have to kill your angels if you will that you maybe wish you had a a little more room to discuss well first say everybody knows particularly for nonfiction books the huge majority of nonfiction books are, are too long. They're too long. And even if it's a great book with a great topic, you read four chapters and you're like, okay, I get it. I get it. It's a good point, but I get it. I don't need to read anymore. That describes 95% of nonfiction books. And so to me, the only way to combat that is by saying, look, if I don't need 50,000 words to explain one topic, then rather than rambling on one topic, I'm going to give you 25 short chapters that could have lived on their own. It's not one long narrative. They have a connecting theme, things that never change or behavioral finance, but these chapters could have lived on their own and they're short, they're digestible. I always have this bug in my head when I write that says, what's your point? Make the point and then get out of the reader's way. And it's not out of laziness for myself that these chapters are short. It's out of respect for the reader. And because I'm a big reader myself and I like when authors just get to the point, make the point clearly and then move on, move on to something else. I'm busy. Let me do something else. So that's what I try to accomplish with, with my writing. What was left on the floor? I guess there was one chapter that got cut and it was a chapter on tribal affiliations and how people cling to the identities of their tribe, which is a point that I really, like, that is something that never changes. I just, I just couldn't figure out the best story and able to, to twist it. So that, that was a darling that got cut. But because of my writing style, I try to go out of my way to just cut relentlessly and just get to the point as quickly as I can before moving on. You know, just because of that style in general, there's not that much fat to cut at the end versus the power broker. And I think you mentioned, I think I remember this statistic. It was, it started, his first draft was a million and a half words and it ended up at 600,000 or something. So there's some books in which the majority is cut. Uh, There's, there's a lot of fat to cut, so to speak. Wow. Morgan, when did you find your voice and kind of the the moment, the setting, the lighting? You know, I know David Milch right now, I think he's suffering from dementia, but famously the director of uh, Deadwood. I believe it was Hill Street Blues and others, but he had a bunch of graduate students with him and he would sit back on a pill on pillows on the floor and have LCD screens and he'd have them type his free association thoughts. I hated being at a Starbucks or being upright on a desk, pounding out the thoughts from outline uh, to get my nonfiction book out. There have to be other ways. You know, friends, when I had the worst case of writing block would say, come over and I will be your Sigmund Freud and you just sit on the couch and you know, hold forth, spool forth, and then you'll go home and you'll whack it down to something. What do you do? Where do you do it? Well, in terms of where did I find my voice, I don't think there's any false modesty in saying, I don't know if I found it yet. Because your writing voice is just a reflection of what you've learned and the books that you've read, the people who you've met. So people who think that they have found their voice are implicitly saying, I've learned all there is to learn. And I think that is foolish. I think my writing voice and even my writing style will be very different 10 years from now because... I read a lot. Hopefully, I'm going to learn a lot more. And so it, it'll very much change. So every accomplished writer, without exception, spends the majority of their time reading. It's not writing. Like what percentage of, of, a, of a full-time writer's job is actually typing on the keyboard? Single-digit percentage time. Mm. The rest is writing and thinking. And then so the voice is always evolving. And if you think that your voice is found, like that's when you get into problems because you're implicitly saying, I've learned everything there is to learn. And when did you hit the elusive work life, perfect mix, perfect titration? Not that you've necessarily hit it there as a family person, as a speaker in demand, as an author in demand, as a board member, as an investor. I mean, as a time where you just want to veg out and be left alone. I think that that's still very elusive for a lot of our contemporaries. 
most of the time. My steady state is sweatpants on the couch watching yeah, Netflix. Same here. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not type A, like need to go out. So it does like work-life balance is, is a tough thing for me to accomplish. The other thing is that for most people in my shoes, for a writer, it is often that it's not a 30-year career. So when you have your moment in the spotlight, you need to take advantage of it, realizing that it's probably not going to last. And then so that when I do have opportunities, even if I'm tired and overworked, I feel this urge to take advantage of them because I know that there's a very good chance that those opportunities for me will not exist in five years. So that's another part of like trying to find that balance. That's really tough. It's gotten to the point where now my eight-year-old son, when I'm packing for a trip, will say, oh, you're leaving again? And that's when it's like, oh, you only need to hear that once or twice for your kids before you start really reflecting on the decisions that you're making and how you're spending your time. Comment, if you will, on scars, the power of scars. You use the metaphor of scarring with the avalanche and kind of this tipping point moment of your life that really couldn't have been there. And at the end of the book, the scars we remember, the scars we... I'm proud of my scars. I won't say that I would go back and do it again. They were traumatic. Some of the... you know, I, My cranium wasn't developed sufficiently, my brain matter back then to understand what had happened. But to quote from the band Not A Surf, which is a quote I used at the end of my book, maybe this weight is a gift, like I had to learn what I could lift. There's a reason why it happened. There's a reason why it happened. There's a reason why it kind of propels you forward. I had illness last year that gave me a lot of time off, a lot of time for perspective, a hunger coming out of that illness to not waste any time. And I think what's important about scars is that everyone, their life and their view of the world is shaped by them. And by definition, I don't understand your scars and you don't understand mine. And it's not because we don't, we're not paying attention to each other, but nothing is more persuasive to you than what you have experienced firsthand. So I can try to understand what you've been through, Robin. You can try to understand what I've been through, but the reality is we're, we're never going to get it. And everybody, that applies to every single person on earth. And because of that, I go through the world, viewing the world through the lens of my experiences, and you do the same. But both of us are blind to how 99.99999% of other people think. And there's, there's not much we can do about it because nothing is more persuasive than what you've experienced firsthand. So those are the scars that really shape us. And what, what I try to do with this is whenever I meet someone whose opinion about the economy or politics, I really disagree with. Rather than assume, the knee-jerk reaction is, well, you're dumb because I understand something that you don't clearly. I think the much better view is, what have you experienced that I haven't that makes you think this thing that I don't believe in? And a better view of that is, if I experienced what you had, would I believe these disagreements that we have between us? Would I believe, mm -hmm. would, would, would I take your side instead of taking mine? And I think a lot of the times the answer is yes. That take, you know, I have my political beliefs. Of course, we're not going to go into them. But if I had lived a different life from somebody who has different political beliefs, I might believe what they believe and, and they might believe what I believe. So everyone wants to think that they are viewing the world objectively, but we're all just mirrors of what we've experienced. And that, if you take something big, like the people who lived through the Great Depression or the Holocaust or World War II, you talked about your own grandfather. I can read about those things, but never in a million years should we pretend that I understand what it was like to go through those things. And we all fall for that trap in our own individual way because the intuition is that I can understand you. That's what we want to believe. But I think the reality is that we just can't. I read this book, same as ever. A guide to what never changes. And one of the kind of the parenthetical asides I had was tribalism versus non-correlating assets. True diversification of thought. You know, you're you're speaking about something that is truly hot right now. We're talking about divided college campuses, 
places where you know students are divided, people are calling out specific students, students maybe are not feeling welcome. Uh, you're seeing a certain level of rhetoric politically, certainly we felt it since the 2016 election, uh, maybe even before that, that it's just really hard at actually approaching Thanksgiving to sit at a table and just listen to someone who you would on the margin or on the surface, not be able to agree with. I think that it takes a certain discipline, and I thought about this in reading your book, to be open to other opinions. I think that I share this story all the time. You go back and read the Fed minutes of early 2007. Nobody was really talking about a subprime or housing meltdown. We were having staff meetings at Business Week talking, you know, the world is awfully calm. You're seeing private equity deals done at eight or nine times cash flow. China's probably going to blow up. It's going to be another emerging market thing. And I think Mm -hmm. of that, I think of the, you know, smashing pumpkins lyric, the killer in you is the killer in me. Like it was us. It was happening here. (laughs) So that's a kind of a roundabout way of saying that that really, you know, I should be out there. I should have been out there talking to the gold bugs, talking to the people that were warning us about Fannie and Freddie for time immemorial. But when they've been so wrong and so negative for so long, it's kind of hard to give them a hearing. The best thing that I, that I read recently about tribal affiliations came from Kevin Kelly, who was the executive editor of Wired Magazine. Hmm. And he said, you are falling victim to tribal thinking if your views on one topic can be predicted from your views on another topic. So an example of this, kind of a a stark example would be for most people, you could say, tell me your views on immigration. And with probably 80% confidence, I can predict your views on abortion or something Mm -hmm. like that, just as an example. And Kevin Kelly says, you're not thinking independently if your views on one topic can be predicted from another. I think in economics, there's a lot of this too about, you know, people tend to fall into an economic tribe and the tribe is usually some, it's usually very heavily influenced by politics and partisanship. And it falls into a camp, like you're an optimist or you're a pessimist, you're a tech investor or you are a value investor. And I think whenever in investing, you you can say, I am a, a blank. It doesn't matter what blank is. I'm a value investor. I'm a momentum investor. It doesn't matter what it is. You're falling victim to tribal thinking and you're kind of outsourcing your critical thinking to a broader group. And that I think can be really dangerous and something that is as nuanced and emotional as investing. It really requires independent thinking. And the independence that you need to have is realizing that your risk tolerance, your time horizon, your social aspirations, Robin, might be different from mine, are almost certainly different from mine. Even if you and I are just as educated as one another and we're looking at the same information, we're different people. So it gets dangerous when I'm taking my economic cues from anybody else who has a different financial goal or risk tolerance or time horizon than I do. So the independence of thought you need in investing is understanding your own behavior, your own goals, and realizing that people around you who are just as smart and informed can be playing a totally different game than you are. Is simplicity an antidote to this? I mean, you write about simplicity in the book, and I'm thought about the dumb luck that I've had in my career is that I was profiling Jack Bogle for Business Week on the week to the market's bottomed in March of 2009. He was giving a talk about the importance of fiduciary standards in DC. And we're on the Acela from Philadelphia to DC. And he's telling me that this was the obverse of what he felt in 2000, even though he's not an active investor. It was so out of whack that he went all into bonds. And he said, unless we're all going to be eating dog and cat food in a year, I would be back in stocks right now. It's a, it's really irrational pessimism and fear. And I just remember asking him, really, is the is the best really you can do? Should, shouldn't you be thinking about a complex zigzagging world more than the S&P 500? And he's like, nope, it's the best that anybody can do. Don't even bother. And I understand you built that mousetrap, Mr. Bogle. But when I'm reading this, uh, it seems like simplicity would be important. But 
when you see that you you don't want to fall prey to similar thinking or tribalism, maybe the antidote to that is complexity, to seek more diversification, to go into exotic assets, to do things that have not been charted before. Because after all, I mean, wasn't Korea, South Korea, the size of Ghana in 1950? I mean, right. China took how many people out of poverty? The United States was an emerging market during its panic phase. Am I even making sense? <laughs> Yeah, no, totally making sense. But I think rather than saying, you know, something like the S and P five hundred is is the perfect thing, is the perfect investment. What I would say is it's good enough. It's good enough. And a lot, most, a lot of investing mistakes come from when people take something that's good enough and they try to perfect it when they should have just settled for good enough. And good enough can be great if you can earn average investing returns for an above average period of time. If you can be average for twenty years, you're going to end up in the top ten percent. Maybe the top 5% of all investors. So realizing that you can take an investing approach that's good enough. Could it be perfected? Of course, but you don't need it to be. Just take good enough and let it run for 20 years and magic is going to come out of the other end. That is, I think, that's what Bogle gave to us, was not saying that the S&P 500 was perfect. It was just saying that, like, look, it's so simple that it's going to give you a fighting chance. It's going to increase the odds that you can actually stick with it for 20 or 30 years. And the complex mousetrap might earn higher annual returns, but it massively increases the odds that you can't stick with it, that it's going to blow up or it's going to become too emotional or the manager that you invested with is going to retire and you can't stick with it for 30 years. And sticking like average returns for 30 years is going to lead to a way higher net worth than good returns for 10 years. Hmm. I think that's like the counterintuitive nuance here. And in closing, I love the fact that you remind us that time is so, so, so precious. I mean, you could spend a lot more time away from your kid, away from your book, away from the book tour, away from vegging on the couch and sweatpants and Netflix and finding a better mousetrap to maybe get 50 basis points better, you know, risk adjusted over 20 years. But that comes with a real cost. Like when you say you're going to go on the road and the eight-year-old is looking up at you, I see that that's an inexorable pull. And it's made me kind of really reprioritize my life. I have to say that the book is a must read. Same as ever, A Guide to What Never Changes by Morgan Housel. He is a partner with the Collaborative Fund. He is a board member at Markel, which brings him to Richmond, Virginia on occasion. The global bestseller, I, I suggest you read this after reading The Psychology of Money, which has been just, I don't know how you churned it out and made it so simple. I don't know what voice was in the back of your head saying, reduce, 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 reduce. It was just at the perfect cadence and the perfect size. So. I am a fan, sir, of your byline. Thank you so much, Robin. Appreciate it. Please and please come back on the show if we could ever snag you. Thank you so much. Full disclosure, special thanks to Case Graham and Claire Morgan of Notterly. Don't forget that we podcast to all of the fine podcatchers, including NPR, NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. A shout out to our radio listeners on Radio IQ WVTF across the great Commonwealth of Virginia. We are in Asheville, North Carolina on WPVM. You could catch us out west in Ventura, California on KPPQ. Holler if you would like to have us on your air. My DMs are always open. You can follow on all social media at handle full D radio and catch me every week on both NPR's Here and Now and MSNBC. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week.